the first time focused on what was happening uh, in the process of the miracle of uh, Jesus being healed from the demon uh, the demon possessed man being healed by Jesus. Uh, but really, the the process this morning is looking at what happened just afterwards. Uh, but we'll start um, at the beginning and we'll work our way through. See, the question is, what happens next? What happens next? So often, uh, as churches, we get so fixated on getting them to pray the prayer, getting them to raise their hand or make a confession. And then we go, yes, on to the next person. And, and we kind of just leave them to it. And that's a very dangerous thing. In fact, it was one of the real reasons why, as a church, we really restructured a lot of what we were doing and put a lot of emphasis into our small groups. Because we had people who had been saved for a year or two years, and, and trying to physically meet up with them one-on-one, on one-on-one, it was getting impossible, and, and it wasn't feasible with different shifts, patterns, and age groups to meet as a group. And so small groups was one of the big answers to that of getting people together and built up in the fundamentals of the faith and fellowship. Now, I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about a lot of different things during this series. Some will be appropriate for uh, children to be in and listen to it. Some of it, I understand that as parents, maybe you would rather not. And so a lot of those more, um, I don't want to say um, controversial, but sensitive issues we're going to be dealing with them more in September time, and just whenever the Bible classes are all back. Um, my plan is, because I have to very much rush through um, some very complicated issues in, in a short space of time in one service, um, my, my goal is to uh, inform and to teach the adults and then give you the tools that, if you so desire, you can then teach your children about those things. But I also understand that some may wish to protect them and shelter them from some of the more complicated issues until such times that they're old enough to understand. That's fair enough. But when we come to Mark 5 this morning, when Jesus speaks to a new convert, there is so much what can happen because Christians can fire so much at them. You have to read this Bible. You need to read these notes. You need to pray so many times a day. You need to do this and this and this and this and this. And you need to stop doing this and stop doing this and stop doing this. Get rid of your friends. They're all terrible. You need to get a whole bunch of new friends. And they're all here in the church. And you have to stick with them. Don't talk to them. And it's like all these things are fired at them. And we have to remember that once someone is saved, that is a huge, fundamental, life-changing thing that has happened. And there will be changes that come along. But as we've been talking, we spent the last couple of months talking about um, gardener's world and, and the fruitfulness metaphors. Uh, but let me add another one into the mix where you've got this idea of being a child in Christ, a, babe, a baby. You may want your child to read Shakespeare when they're older, but you don't hand a Midsummer Night's Dream to a six-month-old. They're not ready for it. You have to start with the A, Bs, and Cs. You have to start with this is red, this is yellow, and that's the book over. And you build them up. And they grow into it. And so much, I, I think we can expect so much from young Christians far too soon. Fruitfulness will come if, if they're truly saved. It will come, it will come naturally. Um, I, and I think it can be dangerous when we force it on people. Um, they need help, certainly. They need nurtured, certainly, like any baby does. 
But growth will come. Growth will come. So my question then is, what would Jesus say in the immediate aftermath of someone getting saved? Whenever they have been transformed, they've been changed. What does Jesus say then? What does Jesus say then? And honestly, the truth is that depending on uh, the person that Jesus was speaking to, he said different things. And that made this actually a lot more complicated than what I thought it was. I thought I was going to start off with a really easy one. Um, turns out, no, there, he says different things to different people. You know, remember the woman caught in adultery? Go sin no more. That was it. <laughs> you know, neither do I condemn you. Go sin. It's like, right, okay, well, certainly you could work some stuff out of that. But here in Mark 5, I think there's, there's a lot more going on, and I think it's helpful to see. So, so let's read the first couple of verses, and we'll go from there. Um, Mark 4 ends with Jesus calming a storm. And then uh, chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. So this guy had like superhuman strength. This is incredible stuff. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So imagine, I have this picture in my head of lying in bed, and there's almost like this werewolf in the background. You know, and it's like, you know, but you always heard him. You never saw him, but you heard him. And I imagine people being genuinely terrified. Here's a guy who we can't control. We can't lock up. We can't hold back. And he's howling. That's scary. So the first, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself, sorry. Uh, first thing here about the circumstances surrounding this is that Jesus has just brought the disciples through a storm. They've got in a boat, they're going across the lake from Capernaum, uh, and Jesus fell asleep on the boat, and then all of a sudden one of those storms just came up, and they genuinely thought that they were going to go under. Even though Jesus told them in chapter 4, let us cross over to the other side. Now there was a lesson in the storm. Jesus has the power of the storms that are on around us, the circumstances. He has the power over the things that we have no say in, things that we cannot control. He is powerful. We can plan, we can organize, we can be prepared, we can strategize, we can think as positively as we want to, but we can't change the weather. Jesus can. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus is showing his disciples that even if Jesus says that you're going to go over, you will not go under. And so he demonstrated his power over the natural world as he commanded the waves to be still. He has power over the storms. But now that they get ashore, it's a continuation of the exact same lesson. God is greater than the storms, but not just the ones that are about circumstances. He is also bigger than the internal storms, even supernatural storms. And as soon as they step out onto the shore, they meet this man who mentally, physically, spiritually is in a storm. The Bible specifically tells us what it was about. He was demon-possessed. Now, some people can be under-spiritual, and they say, oh, no, it probably wasn't demons. It was probably um, epilepsy, or he had some sort of combination of, of things that says, right, okay. But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus is talking to the demon legion. So we know that that's not true. 
on the other side of things, though, sometimes people can over-spiritualize things. And I know that sounds like a dangerous thing to say as a pastor, but sometimes it can be true. Um, because then all of a sudden, people will start saying, oh, well, everything is the devil's fault. The devil did this. The devil did this. The I, I, I kid you not, I was doing exams in Bible college, and someone was, was writing out uh, some answers in a pencil. Or no, a pen. It was a pen. Uh, but the pen ran out of ink. And he, no joke, said, the devil's attacking me. And I'm thinking, stupidity's attacking you. Why did you only bring one pen into the exam? But that's just me. But I, I genuinely, I've sat in church meetings where I've heard people praying for the demons of shopaholics to be cast out. Right? The demon of acne and migraines to be cast out. And I promise you this is true. My dad was in a church in this country last summer and one guy prayed for the demon of trapped wind to be cast out. Uh, yeah, yeah, but that is genuinely true. Now, I don't want to be crude, but I just hope I wasn't standing behind the guy when that demon came out, <laughs> you know. Although great would be the relief all around. It comes as a nonsense. It becomes a nonsense. And the problem is that when you have a church service that's focusing more on what the devil is doing than what God is doing, you're on very dangerous ground. The focus is on the wrong thing. And when everything is a demon, we tend to trivialize and minimize what is actually going on when the devil is really involved. And the truth is, I don't really want to get into that because I'm more interested in what you're saying afterwards. But it's a picture of Christ's power in the inner storms. And in general terms, this is important. It's a reminder of what we've been saved from. I think that'll be the first thing Jesus would say to someone who's been just saved. Don't forget what's just happened. Don't forget what you've been saved from. Jesus, in fact, would have, it could be summed up for Jesus in 1 John 3. It says, For we know that the Son of God has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Christ has come to undo what Satan has done in our lives. Satan, right from the start, wants to wrap us in chains, to make us comfortable in the chains, the prison of chasing after material things, the prison of chasing after lasting happiness, the prison of chasing after self-fulfillment. And he binds us in our sin because we've wrapped ourselves up in these things that aren't going to satisfy and this is the spiritual battles going on in our lives. Satan is wrapping us up in these earthly things that will never satisfy to distract us from eternal things that will satisfy. While God seeks for us to know freedom from chains and the purposes for which we were created, which is fellowship and closeness with him. Satan as an enemy attacks us spiritually. He attacks us emotionally. He attacks us physically. And Satan, no matter how he works in your life specifically, whether it is obvious and scary like this or other more subtle and deceptive ways, his goal and his purpose is always the same. And we see it in this poor man in the Bible text. He wishes to separate. That's the biggest goal of Satan, to separate. He wants to isolate people from God. He wants to isolate people from healthy, good relationships. And he wants us to build up walls and hostility. Now, what Satan will do to achieve this is he will try to rob um, a person of their sanity, like this man. Rob them of self-control, like this man. 
to rob him of the joy of a home, of a family. Now notice what society tries to do, how this society tries to handle a person like this. What do they do? Isolation. Incarceration. We can't change a person, so let's lock them up. Let's put them away. Let's put them in chains. That's what Satan was doing here. And you don't have to go back that far whenever people with mental health problems in our society, what happened? They got locked up. Let's, let's tie their arms up in a, in a straitjacket. Let's, let's put them in a padded room because we don't know how to deal with them. See, society can't really change people. All it does is medicate people. And our society is filled with people who are on pills for all sorts of different things. Because there's something that's not quite right. And we're trying to find the answer. Today the mantra in a lot of places is that everyone else who isn't scary, (laughs) who shouldn't just be locked up or isolated, everyone else is accepted. Everyone is acceptable. Which for the most part is um, not really changing anything. It's not about changing people. It's about changing what is deemed acceptable. Um, you know, and we've seen that in Northern Ireland where you know, there used to be sort of these kind of clear ideas of what was right and what was wrong even 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And that's changed now. People haven't changed, but what is deemed to be acceptable has changed. And yet for the most part, the church would be ha- is happy enough with this. Uh, for the most part, it is a good thing. For the most part, the church is right alongside them in this. Come, yes. You want to come to church? Absolutely. Listen, it doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter about your sin. It doesn't matter about your change. It doesn't matter about your baggage. It doesn't matter. Come. This, this gospel's for you. Of course we want you to come. Of course we want you to be. You're, ex- you're going to be accepted here, welcomed here. The difference, though, is that the gospel says, but let's address the storm going on inside. Let's not just accept that this is the way you are. Let's seek out a better way, one marked by freedom from chains. One marked with real joy, real peace, real love. The fruitfulness that we spoke about last Sunday morning. Yeah, I mean, I heard about one guy, he was talking about going to a rage room. A rage room is basically, rather than changing your issue with, anger or or, uh, changing your issues with a short temper you can go into a room and literally just take a baseball bat and smash everything around you just let it out just smash everything around let your rage out and then but really what it's saying is like this isn't something that needs to change just if we filter out over here and then we can crack on if you're incapable of fidelity and monogamy well, that's fine. Just don't bother with marriage. Don't just, just crack on because if you're happy, that's all that's important. Everything's acceptable. Everything's permissible. But when we get to verse 6, it says, When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran before him and fell before He ran and fell before him. Now, that's very strong language. Um, proskuneo is the Greek. The word literally is translated to bow down to give homage to, to worship. It would be something that you would do out of respect if you met someone in a position of authority greater than yours. So if, uh, for the ladies, it might be a curtsy. For the men, it would be a bow if you met the queen. Or, and and for, this, was, 
this, the, um, the demon coming and recognizing who Jesus was, he doesn't just fall on the floor and writhe around like having a seizure. He's in control. He's bowing before Jesus. These demons, even though they hate everything about God and everything that God represents, they're still powerless in his presence. Why? Because Jesus is greater than the storm. And ultimately, that's the story of our salvation. It's maybe not how we think about it as, as, we, as, as it's happening to us. We don't often think of it in these kind of spiritual battle uh, themes. But this is what happens. Satan is so determined to distract us and get caught up in the storms that we chase peace and we chase love and we chase joy, while at the same time, he's selling us false dreams. And we get wrapped up and we get wrapped up. And then Christ comes and nothing compares. Nothing compares because he's greater than the storms. Now, we're going to summarize, we're going to jump through this. To summarize what happens, Jesus casts out the demon, Legion. They go into the pigs, first case of swine flu in the Bible, and the people come out and they are annoyed at the loss of pigs and they ask Jesus to leave. Now, notice uh, the demons, and, and for that matter, Satan, the prince of demons, they, are, they operate by permission. They operate by permission. They are powerful, but they are not all-powerful. They are knowing, but they are not all-knowing. They are present, but they are not omnipresent. All right? Get this idea out of your head. You see these things online, and it's like Satan and Jesus, and they're arm wrestling, and it's 50-50, you know, like and share for Jesus to win. And it's like, no, this is not how it's about. It doesn't compare. It doesn't compare to who our God is. And when you get to the book of Job in the Old Testament, Satan bef- goes before the Lord and asks permission. God says, have you considered Job, my servant, who is blameless? He's upright. Job's a godly man. He's lots of things going on. And Satan says, yeah, but he only likes you because you're good to him. Let me take away those things that you've given him. Let me take away that hedge of protection that you've put around him and let me afflict him and he will curse you to your face. And so, he, and so then God has, has says, okay, you can go, but you don't touch him. You don't touch him. And, and, and he puts limits on what God can happen. And on both occasions when Satan appears before God, he has to get permission before he can do anything. And it was given to him in increments. And those demons operate by permission. In the New Testament, to bring it up, uh, Jesus said to Peter, you know, Peter, uh, Satan has been asking for you that he might destroy you and sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you're recovered, strengthen your brothers. So there was a conversation Jesus had with Satan. Satan came to him and asked him about Peter. Satan had his eyes on Peter. Jesus, of course, was keeping Peter by his power. And Satan's desire in his life was to destroy and to sift him. And certainly Peter did struggle in the days after this when he denied our Savior. But he was brought back. And certainly in his ministry afterwards, he strengthened his brothers. So remember this. Satan is going to come knocking on your door, either through deception or an emotional attack or any number of different ways that we've been talking about because he has studied you and he's going to craft a way to get uh, his best out of you. He is an expert at that. He knows our weak spots. And so when he comes knocking at the door, rather than you opening the door and saying, Hi, Satan, I'm Jeff. I rebuke you. Don't do that. Let Jesus answer the door. 
don't you answer it. How do we defeat Satan? By us rebuking him? No. We're told in Scripture how, how to do that. James says, flee from him. Flee from him. Why have a conversation with him? I, I've heard people saying, oh, Satan, I rebuke you. I rebuke you in this, and I'm demanding this from you. And I, No. Oh, very. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. You're talking to Satan. You're having a conversation with a spiritual being. Do you know that? That's praying. You're praying to Satan. Talking to him. I, I don't talk directly. I talk to God about Satan. I let him deal with it. He's better at dealing with him. He's got the power. He's got the authority. He's got the say so. He created Satan. He's going to ultimately destroy him. Let him take care of the riffraff. Satan's knocking at the door. Jesus, would you answer that for me? I'm hiding. I'm going. I'm playing it safe. I don't want to risk the interaction with him. Jesus, I want to let you deal with it. So number one, remember what you've been saved from the spiritual battle. But number two, remember what you've been saved to. The whole commotion causes a stir in the town. And um, people come out to see, verse 15, they come to see Jesus, who was the demon-possessed, and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Everything that Satan had done has been undone. Satan stripped him physically, he's now clothed. Satan had stripped him of his mental faculties, now he's in his right mind. Satan had him running around and cutting himself, now he's at peace at the master's feet. That is the power of the gospel. That's what Christ can do. But notice that it's not always a popular thing. People got freaked out at the difference in the man, but instead of going, wow, we're scared, but in like that really good way because we're really amazed at what Jesus can do. They reacted differently. Verse 16. Those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart. Let that sink in for a minute. Let that sink in. You've got this guy who is demonized, demon-possessed. He's living. He's been shackled. He breaks his shackles. He's got supernatural strength. He's yelling at people. He's screaming. He's cutting himself. He's crying out. He's this deranged, tormenting. He's like the worst neighbor you could ever have. He's tormenting the local towns. Jesus comes to town, delivers him from the demon, and they're like, Jesus, yet you need to go now. What? In most neighborhoods... If you were to ask people to choose between the two, a demon-possessed, frothing at the mouth, naked guy who cuts himself, yelling at people, breaking chains, or Jesus, if you had to get one of those two guys out of your neighborhood, which would it be? Now, you would think most people, logically, would say, let's keep Jesus and get rid of the demon-possessed guy. He's been a bad neighbor for years. We've been afraid of him for years. We hate going on the road. We don't like our children playing in the streets. And yet they plea for Jesus to go. Now, humans can be so inhuman sometimes. But for Jesus, it wasn't about the pigs that they had lost. They were really upset about their prophets going down. For Jesus, it wasn't even about the demons. For Jesus, it was by delivering a man who was the victim of those demons. He was compassionate towards the man. He loved the person, but the people loved the pigs. 
Jesus changed the man, though. Not just on the outside, not just superficially, but from the inside. And he exposes the fact that some people just don't like change. You would think that people would be happy that this man got saved. But not everyone will be happy that you have chosen Jesus. But remember, when it is you, the change from what you've been saved from and what you've been saved to, it does not compare. And it exposes what other people are really like and really thinking. Do you think this man would have said, you know what, if I had realized that everyone's going to kick off like this, I'd have just kept legion. I'd have kept the demons. I'd have rather have had that because I, I, I'm worried now that I'm not going to have any friends. No. For this man, for the, for the change that happened in him, there's no comparison. Who cares what other people think? Who cares what other people say? Look at the change that's happened in me. Look at the change. Look at what's happened. To, look what Jesus has done. I don't care what other people think. The death of the pigs and the sanity of the man were proof that God can transform lives. He's power over the storms. Let, let, let me ask you this. What pigs in your life need to be killed? It's, it sounds stupid, but that's, that's what happened. The, the pigs being put to death were a sign that the, 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 the demon was out of the man. So let me ask you this. What, what, what signs are there that need to happen, the change in your life, the prevailing nasty habits that are holding on to your life, the demonstration that God is at work in you? What needs to go? Because if he has begun that work in your life, he's killing the pigs. He's restoring sanity. And he's giving us purpose. What we've been saved from, what we've been saved to, the change that Jesus can make. Finally, remember what you've been saved for. As he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, he actually um, listens to the, to the crowd and says, God's fine, I'm going to go. He gets into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Jesus, can I come? Can I come with you guys? And Jesus did not permit him but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Whenever we looked at this in February, we looked at how the legion made a prayer. Don't, don't destroy us. Let us go to the pigs. Jesus answered the prayer of the demons. This crowd have prayed, Jesus, leave us alone. He answered that prayer. Now here is a guy who wants to join the disciples. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to be one of the group. And that's understandable. Think about all that he's come through. Think about how people are looking at him and talking about him in that very moment around him. Suddenly he's delivered. I want to be with the man who did that. I want to be close to my Savior. I want to be close to the one who has changed me. I want to be close to him. I want to experience more of what I can experience with Jesus. I've never had sanity of mind. I've never had clarity of thought. Every day of my life has been physical and emotional torment, exposed to the elements. But now, now I've got Jesus. And I want more of Jesus. 
you know, it's always a really good sign whenever someone gets saved and you see them longing to spend as much time as possible with the one who has redeemed them, with the one who has saved them. And I read this and I think, yeah, I understand this guy. I, I see that. that I, this is really good. This is really healthy. I, I love this. Then Jesus does something that seems very interesting. No. I'm declining your prayer. I'll say yes to the demons and to this mob, but I'm saying no to you. No. Instead, go back. Go back and tell people what's happened to you. See, sometimes God doesn't just want us to stay and praise. He wants us to go and proclaim. Sometimes God doesn't want us to just stay and praise. He wants us to go and proclaim. We have made Christianity, some have made Christianity uh, unlimited to what we call a worship experience. That if we get the right music, if we get the right tempo, if we get the right kind of emotional feeling charging through the place, then that's what church should be and that's what Christianity is. It's this emotional experience. Let's have a worship experience. Let's gather together and we'll sing songs We'll open the Bible, we'll read it, we'll feel good about what we read. And look, that's good, okay? I'm not knocking any of that stuff, okay? I, I love my worship music. I, I love good teaching. I'm sorry you don't always get the best teaching, but I'm doing my best. But that's all good. That's all what we want. That's, that, that's important. We're not knocking it. It's fundamental. It's necessary. But it's just the start. It's just the start. After you come and you praise You've got to go and proclaim. And what do you proclaim? You just tell people what God has done. You see, some of us are afraid and will say, well, what if they ask me questions that I don't understand? What if they ask me about the Big Bang Theory? Or what if they ask me uh, about uh, the Bible's position on, on different things? And I don't know, and I can't answer. Look, speaking of someone who gets asked questions that he can't answer all the time, um, it happens. You just got to be honest and say, "Look, listen, I don't know, but I'll look up. I'll look it up. I'll, I'll put some study into it. I'll come back to you with an answer. I'll ask someone who I think will know, and, and, and I get them connected." But here's the thing: there are questions that I can answer, and I've worked my way through them, and so I can speak. You see, what I'm called to be as a Christian is a witness. I'm called to be a witness. A witness in a, in a criminal case, in criminal proceedings, is someone who stands and tells the people what they have seen. Their job is not to be the prosecution. Their job is not to be the defense. Their job is not to be the jury or the judge. Their job is simply to tell the people what they've seen to be a witness. And Jesus says to his new convert, go be a witness. Don't worry about anything else. Just tell the people what you have seen. Tell the people what you've experienced. You see, at that moment, the people of the Gadarenes were more concerned about the pigs that had just died than a man who had just been healed. They're scared. We're told that they're scared. And when people are scared, they want to put distance between them and the thing that scares them. And so they say, Jesus, you got to go. 
we've got to put some distance because this is freaking us out. So we, you need to go. And for these people, this episode was just too much. They might have been able to handle a little preaching, but when Jesus starts changing lives and costing them money, they wanted no part of it. And so they drive him away. These people have had enough of Jesus impacting them for the time being, so they move him on. Sad, so it is, but that's what some people, that's what happens. Some people are happy enough to, to be around Jesus and sort of come to enough church to kind of make themselves feel good. But once he starts making changes, when he says, okay, let's make changes in your life, let's start looking at your income, let's start looking at your lifestyle, let's start looking at your friendship circle, let's start looking at the things that you're doing, because, oh, that's too much. No, Jesus, now that we're starting to get a wee bit too serious now. Let's not do that. Which is a shame because Jesus, by default, is a life-changing Savior. He doesn't work well at a distance. He doesn't, it doesn't work at all at a distance. You have Christ and you have change. And sometimes there's a right time to share the gospel. And there's a right time to move along. And Jesus knew this and he chose to leave the people, but he did not leave them without a witness. He did not leave them without a testimony. And it is important for a new convert to make amends for past sins, to go back and say, look, listen, I was, I was wrong to do this. I was wrong to say this. I was wrong to, let, to treat you like this. And so I'm sorry, I'm apologizing. I want to make it right and prove his salvation and the power that Jesus has to change through a new lifestyle. Now, maybe this guy could have done that in one day and caught up with Jesus later on. You know, I mean, whenever you're a demon-possessed guy living in the tombs and you're running around naked and cutting yourself, it doesn't take a lot for people to start hearing about that and say, okay, that's clearly not who you are anymore. But Jesus sends and said, go back. Let people know. Be a witness. And here's what Jesus knew about missions that it took me a long while to realize. And a lot of people in churches still have not realized this. You can reach people that as a church, we can't. There are some people who will never step foot into a church building. And they'll maybe have different reasons for whatever it happens to be. The point is, they're not going to come in. But you'll meet them, you know, going down the street walking the dog as a neighbor you, you, you'll maybe socialize with them because they're part of the golf club or they're part of the cycling club or they're at the gym or they're, they're in the same craft club or whatever happens to be you will meet people and can be a witness there where I will never be where as a church we will never be They'll never come for a special service. They'll never hear me preach again. God is merciful. But there are people in your life that I will never reach. And also there are people in my life that none of you will ever meet. That you will never reach. School friends. My neighbors. The people who I will come in contact with. If we are to be fishers of men, my net will catch fish that yours won't. Yours will catch fish that mine won't. You're in a better position to reach your neighbors than I am, your friends than I am, your family than I am, 
And I am better positioned for my neighbors and for my friends and for my family. And so Jesus says to this man, go be a fisherman. Reach the people right at your net. Go back to your wife. Go back to your kids. Go back to your workmates. Reach them. Be a witness. Now this guy had no training, no theology seminars, no Bible college degree, but he knew what he had experienced. And we can talk all we want about how you'd only spent minutes in the presence of the Savior. But some of us spend years in church and never get around to reaching anybody. Jesus wants his converts to be witnesses. Come and see what Jesus has done. Let me tell you, listen, I don't know about all the science stuff. I don't know about all the creation or evolution or Big Bang stuff. I don't know about how old dinosaurs I don't know. But I know what Jesus has done for me. I know what I've been saved from. I know what I've been saved to. Let me tell you what he can do for you. And I think that's what Jesus would say to a convert in 2019. Don't forget, we can spend so much time talking about all the other things, about the changes that will happen and the fruitfulness that will grow and all the different things that can be overwhelming. But for a new convert, let's start with the basics. Don't forget. Don't forget where you've come from. Don't forget what you've been saved into. Don't forget why you've been saved. You've been saved for a purpose. And that purpose is to be a witness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that um, 